It's a joy to introduce Russ Geis as our scripture reader this morning. He and his wife Jane have been at Bible Center since 2008. And we say here at Bible Center, the way to connect is to worship, belong, and serve. And of course, we worship the Lord all throughout the week. But he and Jane and their children have been worshiping here on Sundays again for almost 10 years. Uh, they find belonging in uh, they were part of the marriage journey, ABF. He is in a man-up group, and they're also part of a community group that meets at John and Melanie Burdett's uh, house, so they find belonging there. And then we asked him this week, Russ, where do you serve? And found out that he used to serve in youth ministry, and he and his wife have graduated now into the big leagues, and they serve in our children's ministry in the nursery and kids under four. So I'm thankful to have Russ read our scriptures for us today. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. And would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Russ. Well, have you seen our billboard out on Corridor G? It's above the India Center just across from Chick-fil-A. And the board is simple. We just wanted to put our logo and the cross and welcome folks to Easter. Uh, those who do advertising for a living tell us that top of mind advertising is, uh, is the trend. In other words, people can go to Facebook, they can go to Twitter, they'll go to our website to get details about service times and all the, how our church operates and functions. But they tell us to find ways to get our name and invitation out into the community. And so I was excited to see this billboard show up here a couple weeks ago. In Romans chapter 1, Paul compares the church to somewhat of a billboard. He doesn't use the word billboard, and of course, I don't know they even had billboards back then, but he uses news language. He uses advertising language to remind us that God created the church as an advertisement. He reserved the church. He paid for the church. He's raised up us as the church to advertise specific messages for his glory. And so this morning we ask, what does the Lord want on our billboard? Not on the digital billboard out by Chick-fil-A, but what does the Lord want the church to display? What has he called us to communicate? I plan to answer those questions in the next few minutes, and then we'll give a practical application for how we can live this out this week in Charleston. If you have your notes, feel free to follow along in your bulletin. You can also follow along in your app as we go through Romans chapter 1. 
What does the Lord want us to communicate on our billboard? Number one, Jesus has always been Lord of all. Jesus has always been Lord of all. We could say Jesus is Lord of all, but in Romans chapter 1, he takes a particular slant reminding us that it's always been. It's not a new thing. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The main theme in the book of Romans is one of unity. We find this idea of unity really being one of Paul's key themes in all the letters that he wrote. Uh, He was showing us how we have a union with Christ. And because of that union, we can have a union with one another. So this aspect of unity, no doubt, was needed in the first century church, just like it's needed in the 21st century church. Since the beginning of time, God's people have debated over preferences, have uh, applied their own culture or tried to, see, tried to see the church through their own cultural lenses. And at times, the church has forgotten to love its neighbor as God has called us to love ourselves. And so over and over again in the book of Romans, he's reminding them of our position in Jesus and the closer we get to him and his gospel, the closer we'll get to one another. It's been almost 17 years. My wife and I were married in 2000, July 1st, 2000. And when we did marriage counseling, we had one session. I would recommend a lot more than that. But we had one session, and I can still remember our counselor taking his hands and forming a triangle and saying, the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to one another. And Sarah and I have found that to be true in the last 17 years, and as I'm sure many of you have as well. But in this text, he declares that he is called to proclaim the gospel. And it's the gospel that he wants the Roman church to focus on, to spend their lives for. Because he knows the more we focus on the gospel, the less we'll focus on ourselves. Now, the word gospel is used over 60 times in the book of Romans alone. It is just chock full of the idea of the gospel. We see it in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul writes, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Just a little side note if you're taking notes. In verse 1, he says it's the gospel of God. In verse 9, he says it's the gospel of his Son. Just another little proof that Jesus is God. In verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. In verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word gospel was a common word back in this day. Uh, It refers to, again, good news. Let's take a moment and think about how news traveled in the first century. This was before social media. It was before television. You would have a herald, an announcer, a messenger. 
And so if a general won a war, he would send back, or a battle, he would send back to the capital city a herald or a messenger to declare good news. The battle has been won. And you can picture the city cheering and people throwing hats and other belongings into the air, how excited they were to receive the good news. If the queen gave birth to an heir, a herald, an announcer, a messenger would come and proclaim the good news to the city. And people would cheer and yell in excitement out of joy because of the good news. This is an important point that God doesn't want us to miss from Romans chapter 1. Christianity is about good news, not good advice. Christianity is about good news, not good advice. Good advice says keep the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Try your best to keep the Ten Commandments. And I would agree with most of that. Certainly, God wants us to live ethical, whole, good lives. But that is not the gospel. You see, the gospel is just primary, is just solely news, good news of something Jesus did outside of you. Does the gospel affect us inwardly? Sure. Does the gospel make us better people? Without a doubt. But it is important that we see that the gospel, Christianity, is not something we earn, but it's something Jesus did for us that can change us forever. What is the good news in Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1, we could summarize the good news as this. Jesus is Lord and has come to save us from our sins. What is the good news? What's the gospel of Romans chapter 1? Jesus is Lord and has come to save us from our sins. Notice with me verse 2. This gospel, he says, was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul's enemies evidently accused him of of coming up with a revolutionary new message. They accused him of just going for the dramatic, that it was purely Paul's idea, it was purely Paul's message, and he was doing it to get prestige, he was doing it to get money in the Roman world, and so on. And Paul reminds his enemies, as well as his friends, that the gospel isn't something he invented, but he says it's the gospel of God, and it has its basis in the Holy Scriptures. If you're taking notes, you might want to write Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 55. Actually, Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 46 is what Paul is summarizing in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And throughout this text, he points back and he uses words and images to remind us that that this is a, a Jewish gospel as much as it is a Gentile gospel. This has its roots in the Old Testament and in God himself. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 remind us this. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness 
from this time forth and forevermore. Maybe you've noticed in the last year or so how we've been doing calls to worship. At the beginning of every service, uh, Pastor Caleb typically will get up and he'll have us read scripture together or we'll read a creed together. And, and we usually read it aloud or we listen to him or one of our other pastors read it. And the reason we're doing that, first is because I believe it helps us learn the scriptures. The more we can recite the scriptures, the more we'll know the scriptures. But another reason we do that is really it's been church tradition for about 2,000 years when the church meets together to read the scriptures or to read a creed together. Many scholars believe that verses 3 and 4 were part of an early church creed. The Apostle Paul will do this from time to time. He'll use what we've later learned to be a piece of a hymn or a creed as he wrote the scriptures. Of course, every word being inspired. Verses 3 and 4 are full of a lot of meat. This past week, Josh Backus, a principal of, of Bible Center School, came in to visit, and he asked me, he said, how's your day been? What have you been doing? And I was digging through verses 3 and 4. And he's like, hey, what are you working on right now? And I was like, well, I'm basically trying to figure out how I can explain to you in 30 minutes the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of salvation, the explanation of the gospel, the doctrine of election, and what it means to be an apostle. So if I can do all of that in 30 minutes, we will be successful. I'm not going to try to do all that in 30 minutes, but Paul packs a lot of truth in verses 3 and 4. We'll come back to verse 3 in a moment, but look with me at verse 4. Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's important that we, we recognize this idea of declared in verse 4. If you underline in your Bible, you might underline the word declared. When Jesus became the son of Mary, it was a new thing. But it wasn't a new thing for Jesus to be the son of God. This is an important distinction. Verse 3, we're going to look at in a minute, tells us that when Jesus was born of Mary, that was a first-time event. Jesus robed himself in human flesh. But in verse 4, he didn't become the Son of God, but he was just simply declared to be the Son of God. The word declared refers to, it's a line of demarcation. It's, it's an announcement. It was a recognition. He was just recognized for what he already was. 30 times in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Of God. Now, in our American culture, growing up, I remember thinking, well, if Jesus is God's son, who was God's wife? That's the way kids think, but I think that's generally the way we all think. Who was God's wife? What does it mean he was the son of God? Well, we've learned that this idea of the son of God means the essence of. For instance, there are princes in Africa to this day that call themselves the son of Africa. It doesn't mean that uh, Africa gave birth to them, but it simply means that they, they embody all that Africa is. The same is true with Bob Huggins. We could say that Bob Huggins is the son of West Virginia. Now, that doesn't mean that West Virginia got with Virginia and got married and did what married people do, and, and out came Bob Huggins. That's not what it means. 
if, if, it, that did, if that was the way things worked, and if West Virginia got with Ohio, the kids would be terrible drivers. But um, <laughs> Bob Huggins is the son of West Virginia. He embodies the principles and the pride and all that West Virginia is. I recognize the illustration breaks down. Most illustrations about the Trinity do break down somewhere. But you get the idea. Jesus is as much God as God the Father is God. When was he declared the Son of God? Verse 4 tells us he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, or we could say the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. At his resurrection is when the line in the sand was drawn. At that moment, God threw down the gauntlet and said, at the resurrection, you have no choice but to believe this man is God in the flesh. You see, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 reminds us that the Holy Spirit did something that the Holy Spirit had never done before. In Romans 8, 11, it tells us, if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised up Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. There have been many to walk the earth and do miraculous deeds. We see it all the way back in the book of Exodus. Moses did a miracle, and the false prophets did a miracle right beside him. But never in human history had someone been raised from the dead by themselves, by the power of the Holy Spirit, eternally. Jesus raised people from the dead, but they all died again. And God says that we, the church, the, the anchor, the thing that makes us the church is the resurrection of Jesus. How else do we explain hundreds, if not thousands, who saw him rise from the grave and they gave their life to serve him faithfully? If I hadn't seen Jesus rise from the grave and somebody said, you're going to be burned at the stake in the first century for your faith, I would have tapped out. No problem. I didn't see this. But time and time again, history and the Gospels remind us that Christians gave their lives because of what they had seen and heard. Before we move on, the end of verse 4, this is key. It points all the way back to verse 1. What, what is the gospel of God? What's the pinnacle, the apex of chapter 1, verses 1 through 7? It's these four words, Jesus Christ our Lord. The word Lord means owner, ruler, provider, sovereign, master, king. And the gospel is the gospel because it's all about Jesus Christ. Jesus has always been Lord of all. What else does God want us to declare? We want to declare to Charleston, Jesus is Lord. What else can we put on our billboard? It brings us to number two, and that is that Jesus became least of all. Jesus became least of all. We see it in verse one. Paul says, 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This idea of servant, the particular word in Greek culture refers to an involuntary slave, a permanent slave. History tell, reminds us that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And so the word itself refers to an involuntary slavery. Uh, but many scholars believe that Paul was doing the same thing that Moses did, Joshua did, Isaiah did, David did. And they would, they would say they were the servants of the Most High God. And they weren't saying that they were involuntary slaves. But it was a, it was a privileged title to say you were the servant of God. The Old Testament allowed for people, although set free and although they could go their own way, the Old Testament allowed for you to, to give your life to your master because you loved your master and you knew your master would care for you. And, and so Paul is using this idea not only of, of slavery but also of love. And he says, I love, I'm enslaved to Christ Jesus. I give my life as a servant. Where did Paul learn this? What was his model for servant leadership? We see it in verse 3. In verse 3 he says, Concerning his son, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. The New American Standard Bible gets it a little more accurate here. The literal translation is, He was born of a descendant of David. Jesus was born of Mary, his birth mother, who was the descendant of David, and Joseph, his legal father, was also a descendant of David. They went back far enough. There were no, no cousins, nothing like that going on. But we see that Jesus was fully human. This idea of, in verse 3, according to the flesh, refers that Jesus was 100% flesh. He was fully human. He was Emmanuel, God with us. It points to his humanity, but it also points to his historicity. We find in Roman history that famous historians that are generally accepted as reliable, like the Roman Tacitus, the Jewish Josephus, and Pliny the Younger, and many others, refer to Jesus as a historical figure. And, and so in other words, what Paul is trying to emphasize here is that you are not believing in a spirit. You're not believing in a myth. You're not believing in a ghost. You're believing in a real man who was also fully God who gave his life for you. Erwin Lutzer, the former president or the former senior pastor at Moody Church, writes this. There's a principle in the Bible that you must become like that which you redeem. So in order for Jesus to redeem us, he had to become one of us. You can't take a spirit and nail it to the cross. A spirit could not have been a sacrifice for sins. If God was going to redeem us, he had to become us. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is why the incarnation stands at the very heart of the Christian faith. When you're explaining the gospel to your kids or explaining the gospel to a coworker. One of the great ways to do this is the idea of place-taking. The gospel is all about place-taking. Here's what I mean. If you think about it, we sin when we try to take God's place. Any definition of sin that talks about just doing bad things falls far short. 
because sin is so much more than just doing bad things. Sin, in its essence, is trying to take God's place. When I sin, it's because I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and I want to be in charge of my life. That's sin. It goes far deeper And so as we communicate the gospel to our kids, it's helpful not just to say, well, it's because you did these three bad things, Johnny, therefore you're a sinner. No, it's helpful for us to remind them that mom and dad, like them, want at times to take God's place. That's sin. So think about if we lived, let's say, a couple thousand years ago, and you were a part of a a rebellion, and you were revolting against the king of the land, and you were going to form a coup, you were going to take over, you were going to have things your own way, and the king and his army, his loyal army, found out about it. A couple thousand years ago, what might have happened? Hey, it might even happen today. The king would have sent his army to you, and there would have been no mercy. You couldn't have said, well, I don't deserve to die because you do deserve to die as a rebel, as a traitor. So but think about what the gospel is. The gospel is that God himself, the king, heard that you were forming a coup. And instead of sending his angels to wipe you out and destroy you forever, he came himself And just as you took his place and became the God of your own universe, Jesus took your place as the God of the universe to save you from your sins. It's scandalous. And that's why Paul says the gospel is a stumbling block to those who refuse to believe. What king would do that for a group of rebels? Only King Jesus And that's why the Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This past week on Thursday, we got an email from our pastor of family ministries. Pastor Matt Garrison sent an email, and I don't think he could have packed any more exclamation points in the email. Matt, I don't think you could have. It was great. He just wanted to share that this past week, two of our teen young ladies recognized that they were sinners and put their faith in Jesus Christ on youth outreach night. What were they doing? Amen. What were they doing? They recognized the king came for them. And this morning, I'm asking you to recognize the king came for you. At the end of our service, you have the opportunity to pray and receive Christ. But right now, even as you sit there, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Jesus, he is Lord of all. He became least of all. But lastly, Jesus calls us to show his love to all. Verses 5 through 7, Paul's constantly concerned with mission. He says, through whom, through Jesus, the end of verse 4, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us to share his love with all. 
If you're taking notes, in verse 5, he, he tells us we've received two things. He says, through whom we have received, one, grace, and two, apostleship. The whole book of Romans speaks of this grace. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. Grace is receiving far more than we deserve. So Jesus won the medal of honor, and God pinned it on our chest. We didn't deserve the medal of honor, but he gives us his grace, his acceptance, his righteousness. That's grace. But he also gives us apostleship. There in verse 5, grace and apostleship to bring the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And when you think of the word apostle, what comes to mind? What comes to my mind is Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, uh, John, uh, Peter, the apostle Paul later becoming, being named an apostle. And in the New Testament, certainly these men were apostles. But I didn't know this till this week. I learned that there are multiple other people in the Bible who are called apostles other than the 12 and other than the apostle Paul. As the church grew and matured, and as the New Testament continued to expand, the word apostle was later applied to any Christian who was sent with a message. If you're taking notes, we find that the word apostle was applied later in the book of Acts to Barnabas. It was applied to Epaphroditus, Apollos, Silvanus, and even Timothy. So as the New Testament goes along, we see here Paul writing at the end of his third missionary journey in verse 5. He says, we as Christians have received grace, and we as Christians have received this calling of apostleship. Now, it's little, little a apostle. Please don't leave the service this morning telling your neighbor, your husband, your wife, your friend, your brother, your sister, that, hey, I'm an apostle. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? I'm, but he is saying that you are called to be on mission. Jesus said at the end of his time on earth, he says, As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. The mission of Bible Center Church is to glorify God by producing more maturing followers of Jesus. We're going to see that more and more around our facility and on our printed materials. Our mission to glorify God by producing more maturing followers of Jesus. If you want to study more about our mission, let me invite you to pick up a great book. Uh, by Christopher Wright, The Mission of God's People. It's about 300 pages long. It takes, took me about a week to work through. It's just raw core doctrine about what God has called us to be as his church. If you read it and email me a summary, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. We can talk about it. Looking forward to God using this book and the truth of his word in our church. But think about what the incarnation did for us. As we wrap it up, we're thinking about Jesus, the word incarnate. Jesus became human, fully human yet fully God. Think about what that gave us. What did we benefit from the incarnation? Well, we certainly received a, a, a master, Jesus, but we also received a method. We certainly received a savior, but we also received a strategy. And over and over again, the Apostle Paul says, do you want to know how to do church? Do you want to know how to do life on mission for the gospel? He would use the example of Jesus leaving heaven and becoming fully human. We call that, big word, incarnational evangelism. All that means is just as Jesus came to the people he loved and served the people he loved, 
God calls us to go to and love and serve the people that he loves as well. In verse 5, he gets very specific. What is our mission? Just to see people saved? No, it's far more than that. But it's to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. If you're taking notes, you can write Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. The last three verses of Romans uses almost the same exact language, and we hear echoes of Abraham. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul holds up Abraham as this beautiful example of of faith and obedience. And he says, through Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That extends far beyond the blessing on Israel that still extends to this day. But through Jesus, all the nations of the earth can come to know the gospel. In other words, Paul says, our mission is not just one of salvation, but it's one of transformation. As we declare to Charleston that Jesus is Lord, and we show Charleston that Jesus became least of all, and we, we, we love Charleston the way Jesus would love Charleston, people not only go to heaven, but people's lives can be changed. Now, this is easy for a pastor to say this on a Sunday morning and say, man, let's go love Charleston. Let's close in prayer and be done. This is hard. This is really hard. It's it's hard work. We took the girls this week to see Beauty and the Beast, and we're sitting in the movie theater. We hadn't been to a movie in a while, and and I got Sarah here, and I got my two other dates, Katie and Riley, sitting over here, and and we were like teenagers sitting in the movie theaters, uh, just talking and whispering and laughing. I didn't know you weren't allowed to do that. You know, I paid, what, 200 bucks to get in the movies, it seemed like. (laughs) That was just the popcorn. And this... 19-year-old kid in front of me turned around and told my wife and I to shh. Now, I'm thinking to myself, pal, well, I'm not going to tell you what I'm thinking to myself, but (laughs) if I want to whisper to my wife in the movie theater, I'm going to whisper to my wife. And it took everything inside of us. Now, we didn't say anything. We didn't do anything. We might have talked a little bit more just to aggravate him, but then we realized that was wrong, so we stopped doing that. But loving people is hard. People bite back. Yesterday, uh, my neighbor came over. My neighbor, he, he's been attending here. I got two, two, three good neighbors, uh, two of which were here uh, for the last few number of years, and one has been coming. And we've got some great neighbors. But the neighbor that's just new to Bible Center um, came over to help me clean up my gutters yesterday. It was great. We spent like two hours hanging from a ladder, scared to death, cleaning out gutters. He, he just held the ladder and made fun of me while I was at the top of the ladder. And here I am preaching on loving your neighbor. And I haven't seen him in here yet. I don't know sure, sure if he's here. But uh, my other neighbor across the street uh, was also working on something. And I got done being blessed and helped by a neighbor. And I'm seeing Jerry across the street working on something under his house. And I thought, you know, <laughs> I'm just too tired. I'm just too tired. I know I'm preaching on loving your neighbor tomorrow. But, you know, if he needs help, he knows where I live just reminded me how hard it is to do this. Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not saying this is easy, but I am saying that as we as a church 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to be used by God to love this city in greater and greater ways. This city will know Jesus in greater and greater ways. What's an application we can take away from this sermon? What's a practical application? It's simply this. Let's show God's love through the beans and rice offering next Sunday. Let's show God's love through the beans and rice offering next Sunday. I'm going to let Pastor Chad in this video explain beans and rice, and then we'll close in prayer. Hi, I'm Chad Cowan. Last year, we decided to change our eating habits for a week and have beans and rice, which is what many people around the world eat every day. Some people decided to eat out of their pantries instead of buying new food. Others decided to eat less expensively. Everyone had the ability to figure out what was the right sacrifice for them. Whatever the difference was between what we spent on beans and rice versus our normal eating habits was pulled together and given to multiple families within Bible Center. The money you gave helped provide relief to families who suffered flood damage, helped multiple single parents get much needed repairs to their homes, it assisted a widow who had lost her home with a down payment on a new house and helped families get back on their feet after staggering medical bills. These are just a few examples of how the money you gave blessed families within Bible Center. On Sunday, April 2nd, we are asking everyone in the church to bring in their gift that equals the amount that was saved by eating differently. You can give online, through text to give, or at one of the response boxes. The Benevolence Ministry will use these resources to meet the needs of those who are hurting in our church family. So join us this week by sharing the love of Jesus through sacrificial giving. Imagine what God could use us to do. You may do it different ways. You may actually eat beans and rice. Uh, maybe you have a plan to eat less expensively another way. Whatever your plan is, will you consider this week coming next Sunday with a difference in what you've saved so we can bless Charleston in greater and greater ways. Pastor Chad mentioned the widow. I want to read a thank you note from her to you for what God used you to do last year. I'm so excited the Bible Center is having the beans and rice campaign again this year. I was one of the ones you helped last year. You never think that you're going to be that person who needs help how quickly your life can change. We don't always know who is hurting or what is going on in the life of someone sitting right beside you. And that's so true. I'm so grateful for the help I received last year. It put me back on solid ground. It gave me a peace of mind that only God can give by using his people. I'm so thankful that I will be able to eat beans and rice this week to participate in the offering next Sunday. Thank you all so much who gave last year, and I'm looking forward to seeing how God will use our efforts this year. Let's show God's love through the beans and rice offering next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in this church family. It's a work of the gospel. We know that. I pray for those right now who do not yet know you as Savior. I pray they'd put their faith in Jesus Christ today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, right where you sit, you can pray and receive Christ. There's no magic word, no magic prayer. 
But whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you'd like to put your faith in Christ, will you pray these words with me? Right there in your heart, the quietness of your heart to the Lord. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I've tried to take your place. But I believe you love me and took my place instead. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose again the third day. Jesus, please be my master. Be my Lord and change my life. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer, would you let me know, let one of our pastors know, we'll have men and women in the living room, we'll have a pastor down front, would you just let one of our pastors know, I prayed that prayer, I meant it, and I'm glad that I did. Christian, let me ask you to take just a moment and let the Lord use the words of this closing song to send you out on mission this week.